All right, you may be seated. Kids can head next door to uh, Children's Church. They would like. So if you have a Bible, turn to Amos chapter 7. It's our third message in Amos. We'll have one more next week, and then uh, we'll be moving on from Amos. And uh, Amos is a little minor prophet. Uh, when I was a kid, I thought minor meant like he didn't have a lot of impact, but he did have a lot of impact. It was just the length of the book. So you have minor prophets and major prophets determining on the length of the book. And uh, we've been studying it for a few weeks. We're going to continue his uh, story this morning. And uh, Amos' story was a very unique story, um, just because he was a nobody uh, from a little town. It really was a wasteland uh, where people would not find someone who might um, do what Amos did. But God chose Amos to deliver a powerful message. Uh, It was a tough message, but it was a powerful message in which the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah as well um, needed to hear. Um, And it was at a rare time because... Uh, when the nation of Israel would prosper, they would say they were doing well, and yet when they were um, doing bad, they knew the judgment of God was on them, but at this point in time, they were prospering well. Um, They had a lot of money, a lot of prosperity. Um, They had uh, the merchantile industry was running strong. Um, They were uh, full of peace at the time. They had no wars going on. They were a time of luxury and prosperity, so it was kind of uh, odd that Amos would come with such a strong message, Um, but the reality was that they had forgotten God. They were prospering, they were at peace, they were had times of luxury, but their hearts was far from God. Uh, The temples were full, the religious activity was going on, but the hearts of the people were not changed by God. And we know that God doesn't look on the outward, He looks on the inward heart. And for us as Christians, you know, we can dress up and go to church and we can put on a good face and we can say we're really doing well, but we know God sees through all that and sees our heart. And we might be able to, you know, fool the outside. We might be able to fool our neighbors or our friends or those we go to church with, but God looks on your heart. He looks on your heart this morning. He looks on your heart as we uh, go through our walk with Him. And this nation, um, on the outside, they did a lot of talking but they weren't doing a lot of walking. They, they were saying all the right things, going through the motion, but their heart was not in it. But as you know, God will not let His people wander long. He will bring you back to Himself. If you're a God's child and the nation of Israel was God's nation, uh, he, will, he, will bring you, he will bring you back. He will go after you. He will discipline you. And He will pull you back into um, his, his fellowship. And uh, the question is, how long and what's the cost going to be? You know, how much does he have to do to get you to repent and turn from your ways and change your heart? And for the nation of Israel, they were to the point where it was about to be a very serious and a very costly, um, a very costly judgment from God. And so Amos walks in and says, listen, you're prospering and you look like you have luxury and you look like you're religious. But he says, I'm telling you, there's an impending judgment that's going to come, and how you respond is going to make all the difference in the world. If you stiffen your necks and you turn away from God, then you're going to pay the price. You're going to pay the price. But if you repent and you turn back to Him, God will relent, and he will, His judgment will relent. And, uh, you know, that's a tough message. And Amos had a tough message uh, to, to preach in this time. We have a tough message to preach in our days as well. 
And the verses I want to share with you is actually in chapter 7 this morning. I know we read chapter 5, but I wanted to, you know, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and even 8 all run together. Uh, Amos talks about, you know, what he, he sees in the land, but then he also talks about his visions. And so the prophecy in chapter 7 here is the visions that Amos had uh, from God of the judgment that he was going to send upon the nation of Israel. Um, the first one was a locust. The second one's a fire. The third one's a plumb line. The fourth one is a basket of fruit. And the fifth one is a ruined temple. And all of these uh, visions center on three experiences which Amos had with struggles with God. We're going to see God speak and we're going to see Amos respond. And then we're going to see the judgment of God in chapter 8. And then we're going to see chapter 9. He's going to work it out to his will anyways. God is in control. None of this took God by surprise. And I hope that we can find some comfort next week looking to how God is in control even when we seem to think everything's out of control. He's still in control. And uh, so as we, as we read these this morning, I want you to think of the phrase, when enough is enough. And that's literally what Amos was telling the people of Israel. Enough is enough. God says, enough is enough. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 in chapter 7. I'm going to skip a few, and I'll give you the verses that go. But I want you to get just a, a general overview of what these are. And it's always great to go back if you want to read these on your own to really get the context. But uh, chapter 7, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, uh, thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small, so that the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So vision of the fire, verse 4. Thus the Lord called, uh, God showed me, behold, the Lord called for conflict by fire. And it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small, so that the, land, the, Lord, so that the Lord relented concerning this, and this also shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall and made a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. And I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amos, skip down to verse 14 and 15. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of the sycamore fruit. Then, I took, uh, then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. If you skip to verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a, a basket of summer fruit, and he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. Skip down to verses 11 through 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. And that day the fair virgins and the strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall never, they shall fall and never rise again. When enough is enough. I don't know if many of you know me well, but I have the spiritual gift of aggravation. And uh, I can aggravate just about anybody, which works out really well for most people who don't have to spend a lot of time around me, but it really works out bad for Erin. Uh, you know, she, she, has to, uh, she has to endure it many times. So our, through our 20 years of marital bliss, um, there were a few times when I've struck her last nerve. And, uh, and she'll let me know that enough is enough. And as a young married man, I really didn't pay attention because I thought it wouldn't be all that bad. But listen, after 20 years, seasoned veteran, I realized when she gets to that point, uh, women don't get just mad, they get even too, right? So uh, I realize now when I see that look or I hear that word, I'm fine. I know that there's, there's going to be trouble and I'm going to have a price to pay because I've went too far. Enough was enough and I pushed it too far. And you know, as we read this here, there are times when God says enough is enough. You can read through the Bible and see experiences and moments when he says, I can't let this go any longer. I can't take it anymore. Enough is enough. Um, I think back in the Bible, we all know familiar stories of Noah. For 120 years, Noah built the ark and preached and invited people Not one person came. Not one person cared. Not one person other than Noah and his family. They mocked. They ridiculed. They marginalized. They ignored. They went on about their business, doing everything they had to do because it was a time of prosperity. It was a one of time of pleasure. It started to rain. And when the rain began to fall, the ark closed and the judgment of God was there. God said enough was enough. You can also look in the Bible we're studying on Wednesday night, Saul. Saul was the promised king of Israel. He was head and shoulders better than anyone else. He was anointed by God. He was being used by God. But he became arrogant, prideful, self-reliant, began to wander away from God, and then totally neglect God, and was going completely against God's will. And finally, God said, enough was enough. And Saul had to pay the price. Even King David, we're studying the story of King David on Wednesday nights. He was a promising king. He was doing well. Um, He lived his life, and he um, committed adultery. Then he committed murder until one day everything was going great. God sent a prophet by the name of Nathan. He put his finger in his face and said, You're the man, and you're going to pay the price for what you've done. Enough is enough. If you think about it, the Bible's full of stories of God's abundant patience of His mercy and His grace and His love, and we all love to hear those stories. Don't get me wrong. We talk about amazing grace, and we talk about the the mercy of God, and we talk about the patience of God, but there are also moments when we see God's judgment is real, and it is real, and it comes, and when enough is enough, God will not be mocked. He will not be pushed aside. He He will overcome. He will do whatever He has to do, and the judgment will come as God says it will come. And for you and for me, as we live in times where we see just in our country and our culture and just for people alone where you see that God is being mocked and God is being pushed and God is being ignored 
And yes, we have plenty of churches. We have lots of preachers. We have plenty of YouTube channels. We have lots of Facebook stuff. But I think if God would look upon the hearts of the people, he would say, enough is enough. Like, I'm not going to keep being pushed. I'm not going to keep being ignored. So for us as Christians, for those who want to do the right thing, for those who want to be like Amos, how do we respond in this time? Well, I think in these scriptures here, Amos gives us three ways to respond or three things we should be doing in a time like this when God says enough is enough. Number one, we need to be prayer warriors. We need to be intercessors. We need to be those who call upon the name of the Lord for mercy and for his grace and for, his, uh, for him to forbear his judgment. If you look in verses 1 through 9, we read them earlier, but Amos loved God and he loved his people. But it grieved, uh, it grieved Amos to have to tell Israel the judgment was coming. I bet he wished he was back just tending to the sheep and there uh, taking care of the fruit. But Amos knew that God had called him to do that. And in the first three visions we read, Amos responds to God. Amos says, oh God, no. And when he refers to Jacob there, he's referring to the nation of Israel. He's saying, we are small. We are insignificant. We are no match for God. Lord, please, please stay your judgment. Please don't send the locusts. Please don't send the fire. Please don't send the natural disaster. I thought it was interesting in that verse when you think of the third vision there, it was a plumb line. Anybody know what a plumb line is? Any masons out there? Any uh, brick glares, right? A, mason, a plumb line is something that's hung and it's a plumb line that shows you what's straight and what's true. Uh, or in other words, we say plumb, which is another word, level is you know, horizontal, plumb is vertical. So he's saying as he hung this plumb line, it shows that God is true and the nation of Israel has fallen away from its standard of holiness. In other words, he's saying there is an absolute truth. And I think in our world today, what we see more than anything else is that we've thrown out absolute truths. We've, we've pushed aside God's word. We've pushed aside the, the God's standard. We've pushed aside his standard of holiness. We've pushed aside all those things. But in the judgment of God, he's saying the plumb line is there. You can see it for yourself. It's not God that's changed. It's you that's changed. It's the nation of Israel that's moved away from God. And the message is still there. And God's plumb line is still there. And God measured, and he said, you're off course, and you're going to reap the results. But, but Amos prayed. Amos interceded. Amos went on behalf of the people to God, and he prayed. And just like Habakkuk and many other prophets, he said, Lord, remember us. Have mercy on us. And an unrelenting prayer of never giving up hope that people's hearts can change and that God can do a revival and God can work. And he's saying, we're small and we're insignificant, Lord. Please relent. Don't let your judgment come. Let it not be. Listen, when God's people pray, something happens. When we pray and we intercede on the behalf of people, something happens. If we could look back through the Old Testament and see Moses had such a heart for the people of God that when God said he was going to judge the nation of Israel, Moses said, take my life and spare theirs. He begged God. He pleaded with God, Lord, let it be me and not be them. And we also look at Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah. He pleaded with God, not one time, but two times and three times and four times. God, please don't. Uh, please withhold your judgment. Please, if you find anyone, if you find ten worthy, Lord, please Please, on our behalf, please do not let the judgment fall. 
And for us as Christians, more importantly than anything we can do, we need to be prayer warriors. We need to be intercessors. We need to stand before God and the people. We need to pray. Ian Bounds, who's a great, great uh, teacher on prayer, he said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better buildings or new organizations or better methods, but we need men full of the Holy Ghost and full of prayer and mighty men of prayer. And for us as Christians, for us who wants to do the thing that God's called us to do, we need to pray to God and intercede on behalf of God, on the behalf of the people. If you think about our world today, we need prayer. You look at our country, we need prayer. You look to the hearts of the people, we need prayer. You look to our government leadership, we need prayer. You look to the policies and the law system, and you look to every system that we've had in this country that's starting to crumble and to fall because we've taken it out of God's hands and we put it in our own hands and we're doing what's right in our own eyes and every person has, a, has their own way of doing things and we have no absolute truth and our moral fabric of our, company is, uh, of our country is crumbling. And God's going to say enough is enough. But we as Christians, if we want to be like Amos, we need to get a heart full of prayer and go before the Lord and intercede on the behalf of our country. How much time do you spend praying for our country? How much time do you spend praying for our leaders? How much time do you spend praying for our school systems? How much time do you spend praying for our government authorities? How much time do you spend praying for our police officers and for our law enforcement officers? How much time do you spend praying for our military who's protecting us and taking care of us? How much time do we pray for the families and the homes of our communities? And for us as Christians, we ought to be men and women of prayer. We ought to be interceding on the behalf of the people. And if you don't get anything else out of this morning's sermon, if you would just commit to pray for our country 10 minutes a day. Just take it step by step and say, I'm going to intercede. I want to pray. I want to be a prayer warrior like Amos. Lord, we are small. Withhold your judgment. Send revival. Change the hearts of our country because we know enough is enough. And we know we've reached that threshold and we know it's going to come. And yet, Lord, I'm praying on the behalf of the people. Please not let it come. So Amos shows us where to be prayer warriors. Number two. Amos shows us that we should be witnessing and witnessing boldly. That we should witness to those around us boldly. Um, in chapter 7 here, verses 10 through 17, if you can imagine, the folks in Amos' day didn't like them. They hated them. They couldn't stand them. And in fact, the church folks was the one who had the biggest problem with them. Those who ran the temple, the professional religious priests, uh, the religious leaders at Bethel were greatly offended uh, and in so fact that the Bible says the land was not able to bear all his words, meaning that they didn't want to hear it. So Amos was challenging the powerful leaders of the day. Sorry, the microphone keeps going out. But if you see, he says, suppose if you think today, suppose someone would stand at the Southern Baptist Convention and say, you guys have erred and wandered in your way. How well do you think he'd be received? If someone would stand in the Vatican or someone would stand at any other type of major denomination and say, you've wilted, you've turned away from God, you need to get right with the Lord. Man, the preachers and the pastors and the leaders all rose up against them. They'd say, you're, you're, you're talking out of your mind, you're crazy. Well, that's what happened here. Even the chief priests, uh, we have one of them here called Amaziah. 
he goes to Amos, he says, he, he goes and he takes his name and he, he, he wants to stop us preaching. So he goes and tells the king like a little tattletale. Nobody likes a tattletale, right? He runs to the king and he says, Amos is telling us that we're going to have the judgment of God. And so Amaziah says to Amos in verse 12 through 13, he says, go you seer. He goes, go flee to the land of Judah, take there, eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy here at Bethel, for it is a king's sanctuary at his royal residence. See what he's saying? He's saying, we're here and we're under the government and the rule of the world. And he says, we don't want you here. Go, move on. Who told you to come here anyways? Listen, sometimes we have to preach tough messages. Sometimes we have to witness and we have to tell the truth. There's one preacher that said preaching's too soft. Sermons over the last 10 years have become psychological or secular or self-help. They don't use the word repentance and they don't use the word of holiness. And they don't use the word of sacrifice and commitment anymore. Listen, when you read the Bible and you hear what God calls us, He challenges us to repent, to trust, to commit, to, to do what you say you're going to do, to be who you are, to stay true to the Word of God, to have a standard of righteousness. Another preacher said, the true task of a preacher is not to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. Listen, sometimes we get too comfortable. Sometimes we need to hear it. Sometimes we need to hear those things. And like Amos, he had to take a stand. He was willing to have the tough conversations. And for us as Christians at your workplace, you're going to have to be willing to have the tough conversations. When they say, who believes in stuff like that? Or when they say they mock Christianity, they make in front of you at school or maybe in your classroom or maybe in a university, they say, who believes in the Bible? Who believes in creation anyways? It's time for us to take a stand. It's time for us to stand and be bold and be bold about the word of God. And like Amos, he stands before me and said, listen, uh, you made the profession of the king on earth. But listen, Amos' response to Amaziah in verse 14 and 15, he says, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me, and as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. He says, Listen, you serve the king of the earth. I serve the king of kings. It's God who called me. I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to be compromised. I'm not going to run away. It is God who called me. I'm going to do the right thing. It's because he's called me. It's not because of my family. It's not because I'm a prophet, of uh, a son of a prophet. I haven't been through seminary training, but God's called me. If he's called me, he's anointed me. I'm going to tell you what God has to say, period. And no one's going to run me off. You know, for us as Christians, in our world, especially today, we've got to have a backbone. Uh, Dr. Lindsay at First Baptist Church of Jacksonville used to say, any old fish can swim downstream, but it takes a fish with a backbone to swim upstream. He'd say, stand up, you milquetoast Christians. Take a stand at your work. Take a stand at your place. And he would preach that all the time. And even more now than ever. We're told, you're not cool. Be quiet. Don't acknowledge Christ. Don't put Scripture on certain things. Or don't, don't, don't quote the Bible. Don't bring a Bible. Don't talk about God's Word. Don't say the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, don't say His name. And many of us have just taken it. And we went silent. And we won't take a stand. And we won't be bold because we, we've caved to the pressure of culture, culture Christianity. You look to our world. Where has that got us? Look to our, look to our society. 
What good is it now that we have people doing everything right in their own eyes and no one can tell them they're wrong? The justice system won't help. The enforcement part is now take, being taken away. And yet, Christians, we have a message. And we got to be bold. we got to be willing to take a stand that you're not going to teach my kids that. You're not going to tell my family that. We're not going to live that way. We're going to take a stand. And we're going to be the one who takes a stand. And regardless of what you say, and regardless of what the government says, we're going with God. And what God says and what His Word says, we're going to take a stand. You might serve the king of this earth, but Amos said, we serve the king of kings. Amaziah had the position. He had the wealth. He had the authority and had the reputation. But Amos had the word of the Lord. Amos had the anointing of God in his life. If you think about it for us as Christians, how important it is for us to look and see that God calls nobodies to do this work. Some of you think, well, no, God really don't care if I take a stand at my school. You might be surprised. You might say, well, God really don't care if I take a stand at my football team or God don't really care if I take a stand at my, you know, my job. God really don't care. Yes, he does. He does care. Amos was a simple farmer that got called by God. And he says, if God's called me to do it, it's important for us to do it. And you might be a nobody, but if you're sharing the word of the Lord and you're being a bold witness for him, then it's worth something. It's worth something because God has called you to do it. William Carey, who revolutionized the modern missions. In fact, it was probably one of the greatest revivals ever in the country of India. He was uh, taken by this man who's very wealthy. And he was on the ship heading to India. And with him was mixed all sorts of military leaders of Britain's empire builders, colonial officials, uh, a bunch of representatives of nobility. And Carey was not one of those guys. He was not what they considered high society. And uh, they, they looked at him and they kind of scoffed at him. And one evening at the table, uh, the get, he was the guest at the captain's table. And, and, and one of the officers uh, there looked at him and said, I understand, sir, that you decided to be a missionary because you were nothing but a poor shoemaker. And he looked at the man and said, no, sir, I was not even a shoemaker I was only a cobbler and I could only repair shoes. <laughs> and he said, but here I am on the way to India and the military didn't change India. The bureaucrats didn't change India. The economy didn't change India. You know who changed India? William Carey changed India because he took the message of God to them and he took the gospel to them and he changed it for the better, for the good of God. And he wasn't even a shoemaker. He only repaired shoes. So don't say, look to God and say it's not worth it. You may not have a theological education. You may not have graduated from Ivy League school. Obviously, I didn't either. Uh, you might not be able to speak Hebrew, or you might not be able to speak Greek. But just like Amaziah found out, Amos knew he had spent time with God. He had the Word of God. And he was willing to share the Word of God with compassion and conviction. And when you stick to the Word of God and you take a stand for the Lord, He will act on your behalf every single time. One of my favorite stories is in Acts chapter 4. When the church was starting out, the disciples were just a bunch of nobodies. And all of a sudden, they began to change the world. The religious people were mad. The Pharisees were upset. The courts were beginning to arrest them for using the name of Jesus. They told them, you can't use the name of Jesus. 
And yet they couldn't stop it. They couldn't stamp it out. And Peter and John, they were going strong. And Peter in chapter in verse 12, he says uh, about Jesus, he said, there is no other. There is no there's salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven give, given among men by where we must be saved. He was saying, listen, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. It doesn't matter how much you tell me to be quiet. Then verse 13 says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Man, what a great phrase. If someone were to meet you and they walked away and said, they have been with Jesus. Our lives, what else could we ask for? Let's be an intercessor. But also, be one who goes and is humbled before the Lord, spend time with Jesus, and take a stand to share what God has put on your heart with people, regardless of what people say. So the third thing, Amos was prepared for the judgment of the Lord. He had prayed, he had witnessed, but he didn't deny the fact the Lord was coming. Chapter 8 opens up, it begins with a fourth, version, uh, a fourth vision. He saw this basket of fruit, and it was ripe. It was ready to be eaten. Uh, it was ready to be taken and to be, to be used. The harvest had, ended, had passed. The summer was ended, and all the fruit was in the basket. It was, it was done. There was no more fruit to be put in the basket. There was no more fruit in the field. Literally, in the English idiom, it says, the time is ripe or sufficiently advanced, especially for an action or a purpose or ready to uh, be ex- uh, ready for execution, action, or use. Another way of saying it is the odds are in your favor for it to happen. So he sees this basket of fruit, and all the fruit from the field were done. The, the season was changing, and Amos knew the judgment of God was pending, and there was nothing going to stop it. And you think about it, the message here really was aimed at the rich oppressors. They were prideful. They were brutal. Uh, they were taking advantage of the poor. They were taking advantage of the needy. They were mocking the systems of the, of the nation. And instead of repenting, seeking God, they would impatiently wait and take advantage of God's people. And they did at times. And Amos uses four pictures to describe the judgment that was coming for them. First, he used the picture of an earthquake. If you read through chapter 8, you'll see all this. He used his second picture was complete darkness. The third picture was that of a funeral. The fourth picture was that of a famine. So he says the coming of the Lord and the judgment is near. The fruit has been picked. The, the field is empty. And the judgment of God is going to come like an earthquake. Who's prepared for an earthquake? No one is. All of a sudden you're acting completely normal and everything's going well and the earth begins to quake and people begin to shake and fall to their knees because something's being shaken. And he says, not only being shaken, but then extreme darkness, all the day will be dark. So an earthquake with darkness, and then all of a sudden, it's a picture of a funeral where people who was laughing, going to concerts and banquets and having a great time, are now weeping and wailing, have sackcloth and mourning on their hearts. And then finally, he says, it all culminates in a famine. A famine in the land, not of food, but of the Word of God. Not of material possessions, but of the presence of God. He says uh, in the time of crisis here, 
People were going to and fro and going and looking and needing God and needing His. It was nowhere to be found. It was gone. And if you think about it, in a tragedy we see in our world today, we desperately need God's Word, but most people don't want it. We push it away. We don't want to hear it. We don't want it to come. And yet, there's going to come a day that's even more tragic than that. When people want to turn, people's hearts are broken, and they see the earthquake and the darkness, and they see all the stuff, but God's Word won't be there. His presence will be gone. That's what Amos is saying. He's saying when God says enough is enough, it's done. It's complete. It's over. The field has been picked. The harvest is over and the time has come and like an earthquake suddenly and darkness that never turns light again and a famine where there will be no presence of the Lord again, immediately, suddenly, totally, it's gone. Enough is enough. Think about it for us as Christians. We can pray. We can hope and we can witness, but we know what's coming. Second Peter verse 3, 9 through 11 puts it this way. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. This is in the King James Version, by the way, because I love the wording. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. In that He hasn't fallen down on the job. He hasn't taken a vacation. He hasn't walked out on His purpose. He's saying he's not, His promise is that He will return. And it says, as, men some, as some men count slackness, scoffers, people say it's never going to happen. The world's never going to change. God's never going to judge. Jesus is never going to come back. He's saying you count that as slackness like others do, but he's long-suffering towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. That even now we have grace and we have mercy, and he's calling people to repentance. He's saying, come to me, change your hearts, don't go down that road. And, And he's wanting every single person to come to repentance. That's his heart. But the reality comes in verse 10 where Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away, and the great noise and elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Saying the reality is we pray and we witness and we hope, but we know one day God's will will be done. And judgment will fall. And when it falls, it's going to come like a thief in a night and a great noise. And there's nothing going to stop it. Last week, we talked about the judgment and the pronouncements to the churches. And every single one of them ended with, those who have an ear, let them hear what the Spirit of the Lord has to say today. And listen, for us being here, for us being Christians, and for us being those who know the Lord May we have an ear to hear what the Lord has to say to us today. May we be intercessors. May we be prayer warriors for our country. May we be prayer warriors for our family, for our schools, for our community. May we be witnesses. May we share Christ with those who come around us, for those in our family, in our homes, and for our communities. And may we also never forget the fact that God is saying enough is enough, and one day it's going to be too late. But now... His will is that not anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's pray together.